0: In the name of God, who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. In the gospel this morning, we hear the story of Jesus' first miracle. He and his disciples and his mother, so at least some of his family, have been invited to a wedding in Cana. Now, weddings in the ancient world were huge affairs. They went on for days, weeks, sometimes months, if someone was particularly wealthy. And all that time, the guests were fed and cared for at the expense of the host's family. Everything that you could ever want to eat or drink, it was all right there, and you didn't have to pay for any of it. It was filled with tradition. It was an important moment for a family, for their reputation, to show hospitality, to be magnanimous. And at these weddings, the idea was that everyone who came to the feast ultimately was treated like family. There was no difference, no us and them, just family. Now, I'll confess that I love this particular gospel story for many, many reasons, but for today, I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of the servants. So that means that you and I, we are slaves in the household of a wealthy host. It's part of our job to work and to serve at this wedding, which is a very big deal for our master and their family. It's our job to entertain for as long as it goes on and to make sure that they have everything that they need. Everyone is expecting to eat and drink their fill for days, weeks, perhaps months on end. But you and I know that the wine has just run out. And we know that that means trouble. Unhappy people, unhappy host, perhaps some damaged reputations in the community, maybe even verging on a little bit dangerous for us. Maybe the master will eventually blame us. Maybe we get a nice beating for it. Maybe there's a little bit of a riot. Maybe the crowd turns and the whole thing is sort of ruined. And it's into this sort of moment of dis-ease, kind of verging on danger, that this guy that no one has really ever heard of shows up, and because his mother says that we should do what he tells us to do, He tells us to fill these huge stone jars with water. With water. Seriously, like that is gonna do anything to help. Honestly, that's kind of ridiculous. You want us to fill these jars with water. I want you to imagine with me how, honestly, sort of dumb you would feel going back and forth getting water in, in a bucket, maybe, or in a bowl, and bringing it back to the jars and pouring it in carefully and maybe splashing some over the side and trying to keep it in with your hands, one bucket at a time, filling these huge jars, wondering the whole time, will we get in trouble for this? Will we have to just pour it all out anyway? How are we going to empty these out when someone realizes what we've done? Honestly, the servants must have looked and felt ridiculous. Think about it. What Jesus is telling them to do makes no sense at all. So why would they do it? It made me wonder this week, and I hope it will make you wonder in the week to come, about the things that you've done from time to time that feel sort of ridiculous like that, that maybe feel a little dumb. (laughs) Maybe you feel a little self-conscious when people see you doing something. Maybe someone told you to do something. Maybe you were hoping you could make a difference by doing something. Maybe you don't quite know what to do in some circumstances, so you sort of take a shot at it, but it doesn't feel right. Maybe sometimes you're trying to do the right thing. I think for me, sometimes it happens when I I really am trying to take the high road and I feel like somebody else is not. And from the outside, I know that it looks strange and it looks weird, but I'm really trying to do the right thing. Surely you've all had those feelings when you feel just a little bit foolish or maybe more than a little bit. When it just doesn't feel good, but you're, you're really trying. You're not sure why, but you're trying. They must have felt foolish, these servants. Six stone water jars, each of them holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. That's 120 to 180 gallons. It's a lot of water. It's about four bathtubs full of water. And it would have taken a long time, too, depending on how many servants there were, walking to wherever the water was, pouring it in a bucket over time, maybe a bowl at a time. It's not the only story in Scripture where God or Jesus asks someone to do something that makes them look foolish. There are tons of stories like that. Look at poor Noah, who becomes a laughingstock for building an ark until it starts to rain. Or Sarah, who laughs in her old age when she's told she'll have a child, and then she does. Moses, who can't believe that God is sending him before Pharaoh with nothing but his staff and his words. And then God sends the plagues, and Moses is able to part the Red Sea. Or Joshua, who's commanded to march around the walls of Jericho, or Jonah, who is sent to save the people of Nineveh, who are, by all accounts, not worth redeeming. How about the disciples who are told that they will fish for people? What does that even mean? Honestly, it sounds kind of awkward, doesn't it? How about the women who support this young, fledgling religious movement? Women like Mary Magdalene who use what they have to support this church in the midst of a world that thought that women had no real value at all. How foolish that young church must have looked. That fledgling movement that gives authority and autonomy to women. Any one of a number of prophets and disciples and apostles are told in scripture over and over again to do wild and foolish things. And they might pause for a minute and wonder about it, but they end up doing it, and it's a good thing they do because God works through them and does something amazing. Scripture is full of these ridiculous-looking stories. Chief among them, literally, being Jesus who illogically accepts abuse and pain without raising a fist, an innocent man who doesn't defend himself, who carries his cross without fighting back, does exactly what the world would tell him not to do, and instead lays down his life utterly foolishly in the greatest act of love. The Apostle Paul describes that over and over and over again as foolishness. God's love and God's wisdom is foolishness to the world. And if you look at these stories with the eyes of the world, it's true they don't make any sense. But if you look at them with the eyes of faith, then the merciful, kind, and overwhelming love of God becomes visible. And the foolishness of the people is their faith that with God nothing is impossible. And whether it's because they hope that's true, or expect that's true, or just can't think of a better thing to do than to carry God's water, it's a very good thing that they do. Because ultimately through that God uses their action to redeem and transform so in our story this morning in the gospel, Jesus turns all of that foolish water, which sounds ridiculous, into wine. His first miracle. And he doesn't even take credit for it. Only the servants know where, it, where it's come from. And the bridegroom gets the credit. The host benefits richly and never even knows it. A whole crisis so well averted that the host never even knows that Jesus has done this amazing thing. And the wedding feast continues without a hitch. And the moment of fullness and celebration that is described for us in the gospel is allowed to stretch on for longer than it would have, to show us what God has in mind, not just for this wedding at Cana, but for us. Time and again in Scripture, particularly in Isaiah, we have imagery of this feast as a glimpse of the kingdom of God, a feast where there is always enough, where everyone is always welcome, where swords are beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, and neighbors don't rise up against neighbors. God seems to like this image of the feast because we hear it over and over again, the feast that is prepared from the foundation of the world, the feast that we were always destined for, that God has already chosen for us. But to get there, we have to be willing to be a little foolish. We have to follow after all of those people who went before us in faith and be willing to do the thing that looks foolish in the eyes of the faithless and the violent and the lost and the broken world that we live in. We have to be willing to take risks to follow Jesus, to do hard things, and to be presumed foolish by the people around us, even when they don't understand, even when we look a little or a lot foolish. Because we know that God has a plan. And we know that love is anything but foolish. Now as Christians, I think one of our great tasks that returns to us over and over and over again is that we have to be able to hold this moment that we hear about in the gospel, the moment that we hear about in scripture, this this stretched out moment of feasting and peace and celebration, this snapshot of the kingdom that God has prepared for us. We have to be able to hold that moment up against the moment that we live in and measure both of those moments together. We have to be able to measure the moment that we live in against the fullness of God. Because if it's our job to build the table and help God prepare the feast and carry the water that will turn into the wine of joy, then we have to know where we're headed and we have to know what's broken and who's lost and what needs redeeming. Our world is broken. You need only have watched the news yesterday as horror unfolded in Texas while some of our Jewish brothers and sisters gathered in peace for Shabbat, experienced the opposite. You need only look at some of the racial injustices around us, some of the ways that the system is prejudiced against our black and brown brothers and sisters. Honestly, even if you're not really paying attention, even if you don't want to see it, it's hard to deny that the moment that we live in is broken after George and Brianna and Sandra and Philando and Freddie and so many more. While we might have set some things on the right path after Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement and the voices of that moment led us in the right direction, we have not done enough. We have so much more to do to reach a place where all of God's people are safe. Where we can truly say as baptized Episcopalians who take our baptismal covenant seriously that we have fashioned a world that respects the dignity of every human being. Now I know and you know that these are not the only two ways that our world and this moment are broken. But for this morning, I do believe that they should be our focus as we prepare tomorrow to remember the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, and as we give thanks this morning that the hostages in Texas were released safely last night, as we lament the trauma that they've experienced, the loss of life, and the hate, the hate that fuels all of this brokenness. As Christians, we are called to hold these two things together and measure them to hold up the brokenness of the moment we live in against the fullness of what God intends in the gospel. To understand our participation in the difference between those two moments. And to understand our work in trying to build one that looks more like the other. And the truth is, if we do that comparison, I think it's pretty simple. Where God continues to show us in Scripture and in tradition that there is abundance and that there is enough for everyone, we continue to hoard everything we can, especially power and privilege. Where God shows us that everyone is welcome, we continue to decide who is in and who is out. Where God shows us a peaceful feast and radical hospitality where there's no difference between us and them, and instead everyone is equal and everyone is family, we continue to hold on to difference to barriers, to boundaries, to the things that separate us from other people. We continue to hold on to things that lead to hate. Hate that is the root of so many sins, and certainly is the root of the sin of racism and the sin of anti-Semitism. There is no room in the life of a Christian for hate of any kind, for any of those isms, for anything that would divide us because we are different we believe as Episcopalians and as Christians that each one of us is made in the image of God, that each person carries within them the perfect, unbreakable, unlosable, unearned image of God within them. And until we reach the place where the world around us does not see that as foolishness, the entire world, the entire world, then God is in fact asking us to carry the water, to carry the water that will turn into the wine of joy. Now here's the thing about this story. If Jesus had wanted to, he would have filled those jars on his own. He very easily could have said, no wine, okay, great, done, wine. But he doesn't do that. He didn't need the servants to help. He didn't need the servants to go back and forth. He is perfectly capable of doing all of these things on his own. So then why? Why involve the servants, or Moses, or Sarah, or Joshua, or Noah, or the disciples, or the women, or you, or me? Why? And it's because the answer is very simple. And it's the thing we hear in every single story every time Jesus opens his mouth. The answer is Jesus wants you, wants us, to help prepare the feast, to set the table, to make our neighbors welcome, to set things right, to build justice, to love mercy. Even when we think we might look ridiculous, perhaps especially when we think we might look foolish. Because I think most of the time when we say no to those things, it's out of fear. It's out of insecurity. It's because we don't want to look silly or foolish. It's because we want to look powerful. We want to look secure. We, we want to look like we have it all under control. Those aren't inherently bad things. But what Jesus is calling us to is different. Instead, I think we say no because... We're afraid. We don't want to have hard conversations. We don't want to push the people around us. We don't want someone to think less of us. And that no, when we say no to that request, that is a lack of faith that all of us struggle with. And I include myself in that. Every single one of us struggles with that. with being asked to carry the water that seems ridiculous and foolish and hard and difficult water that we can't imagine is about to turn into wine because we aren't God. But when we say no, what we are saying to God is, I don't believe that you can turn that water into wine. And I am too tired and too afraid to go back and forth with my bucket and carry water for you. Jesus could have filled those jars up by himself in an instant, but he didn't, because he wants you to be a part of the miracle, a part of the gift, a part of the feast, a part of the solution. He wants you to carry the water that will turn into the wine of joy so that you have the joy of giving, to fill your bucket with what you can, to go back and forth with your brothers and sisters to do the little bit here and there that you can, knowing that alone, it would take forever to fill those jars. But together, it is possible. Together, if a group of us do the hard work and chip away at it, if we have the hard conversations, if we aren't afraid, if we work for peace and justice, if we know that the wisdom of God looks like foolishness to the world around us and we choose love anyway, then we can set the table for everyone. Even in the midst of the brokenness in which we live, we can choose to move toward and build the fullness of God. This is not foolishness. Because the God that we serve, the God who asks us to carry the water, has proven time and time again that with God, all things are possible. Amen.